Good morning, Grace. Praise Jesus. Thanks for coming again, and uh, we give glory to God. Lord, open our ears as we come to your word this morning, and open our hearts so that we may love you and trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. How you read the Bible is the most important thing about you. My junior year in college, I took a class called King James Bible as Lit. And the first day of class, our professor got up and she went through a list of various interpretations of the phrase, the Bible is inspired. She said something like, the biblical authors sought to inspire people to do good things. That's nice. The biblical authors were somehow wiser or more spiritually attuned than the average person, and thus they were inspired. Blah, 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 blah. The last one she went to is the one that evangelicals believe. It's the one that we here at Grace believe. Verbal plenary inspiration means that every word found in the Bible is given to us by God. That is what verbal means. That everything in the Bible is authoritative. That's what plenary means. And that every word is also divinely directed, which is what inspired means. She then gave notice to everyone in the class, if you believe in biblical inspiration in any real or meaningful way, you should drop the class immediately which I took as suck it up, buttercup, to which in my heart I responded, challenge accepted. I talked to our youth pastor at our church about the professor one day, and his comment was, I am afraid of anyone who could be that close for that long to the Bible and not be changed. Indeed, how you read your Bible is the most important thing about you. How you read your Bible says everything you need to know about your worldview. Which glasses you put on each morning to see the world about you. For example, abortion. There's a Goliath in the room if there ever was one. Christian, have you ever wondered how someone could be pro-choice? Or maybe you're sitting in here thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, how could someone be pro-life? From a worldly perspective, it comes down to which glasses you're wearing. From a pro-choice point of view, the most sacred thing the person can have is the ability to freely choose. Women have been and continue to be radically oppressed worldwide. So, the thinking goes, freeing them sexually helps them to achieve equality and justice. Now, stated like that, who could disagree? Well, me. Because the question then is, how can a woman be truly free if we take away and deny what makes women truly unique? But that's another sermon. From a pro-life point of view, the most sacred thing a person can have is a heartbeat. 
Because without a heartbeat, there is no choice. And my friends, you and I have made so many choices on so many levels before you even start discussing abortion or even open up your Bible that it can truly be said how you read the Bible is the most important thing about you. Now please, please, please understand I am not making light of this very painful subject. You, Christian, need to understand what the right values are that pro-choice people have so that you will be able to understand them enough so that when you do discuss, it doesn't just become a contest of shouting. Because guess what? If that's what the contest is, you've already lost. We can't win the contest of shouting in this world. So then, if that's true, where do you and I find hope as we face this enormous battle and battles like this in the nation that we are facing with regards to abortion? Now we today are going to look at one of the most familiar, I would say even beloved stories in the Bible. Beloved even by those who are not Christian. And it's the story that's commonly called David and Goliath. Where we will see, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the battle belongs to the Lord. Now you remember what happened. Israel is at a fairly low point in its history. But they're pretty happy about it. They just got themselves a new king. And he is just like the kings around them. And he's this Gaston from Beauty and the Beast kind of guy. Strapping dude, big on muscles, small on intelligence, and even smaller on faith. Yes, and uh, by way of commercial, the guy on the left is the uh, character Gaston in the PCPA production. My little girl and I went in December and saw it, and it's going to be starting in Solving June 15th. Okay, commercial over. <laughs> but King Saul had a lot in common with this guy. He was a head taller than everyone else. He, was, he already had a strong, good-looking son that would come along and take his place after when it was time. What more could a fledgling nation want than some big, popular political leader? Okay, won't get into that. But the Philistines are encroaching. And at the moment, they look stronger. They have a big army, an even bigger champion. I mean, this guy ate his Wheaties in the morning when he was growing up. And Saul ben Gaston quaked in his boots. Because when he put his glasses on in the morning, what he saw was himself. And he realized... He didn't have the resources. He didn't have what it took to fight this giant. Goliath put on glasses in the morning as well. 
And they were very similar to Saul's. Except Goliath also looked at himself, and by all the standards he could see, he was the man. He was the powerful one. And there was no one around who was going to be able to stand up to him. But there's a third person in our story, and this was David. Dave was small, inexperienced, and by every outward measure, completely, absolutely, and totally insufficient. But David wore some glasses too. And when David put his glasses on in the morning, he didn't see himself as insufficient, and he didn't see himself as omnisufficient. He looked at the Lord, and he realized that the battle belongs to the Lord. So important, in fact, to understanding this story and the glasses that each of these men wore as they were going into battle that day that I've called this sermon David versus Saul versus Goliath because it is really these three ways of looking at the world that will determine the outcome of the battle. But now, unfortunately, I have to pause again. You heard me just use the word story a couple of times. But I want to emphasize to you that I believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And I believe that it is an accurate reflection of things that actually took place that day. And I believe that it was also written in such a way that you and I can take spiritual truths from it And because we can take these spiritual truths from it, then we can likewise go out and live by the principles taught in it. And this is it. The spiritual truth taught in this passage, the big idea is look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Now, of course, that brings up another point. I got to pause again. And that is the fact that David on that day was not looking to Jesus. He was looking to Yahweh. He was looking to the personal creator God of the universe who guided Israel to be the nation they were. And of course, we, looking backwards, have more revelation. We have more Bible that was written. And so when we speak of Yahweh, we speak of him as God the Father. And the New Testament calls us to look to God the Son or Jesus. Now, I'm not going to go into more of that, although I certainly could. If you're interested, go back to Pastor Benji's sermon on the Trinity from a few years ago and listen to that, or go to Wayne Grudem and look up the Trinity in his systematic theology. But right now, let's get to our very true, accurate reporting of things that happened that day. Starting in verse 8. Goliath the giant stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Now, we see two things right away. The first is is that Goliath is daring Israel's army. Hey, come on, come and get me. I'm right here. What are you doing? Why are you waiting? But secondly... Goliath, putting on his glasses, sees the world in purely materialist terms. 
Now let me explain. According to Goliath, there is only earth, sky, and sea. In other words, all that there is, is what you can touch. And because he is the biggest, baddest thing that can be touched, he's willing to stand up and make fun of all the people on Israel's sides who are trying to hide behind their tents. By the way, this is exactly how those in the pro-choice camp see the world as well. There is no spirit. There is no soul. And when you die, you simply decompose. So what's the big deal? The big deal is that as everyone knows, unless they've educated themselves stupid, is that this fatuity is a lie. You know, I know, they know that there is more to human beings than can be touched. We are soulish people. Which is exactly why you cannot just cut us open, put us in a plastic bag, and throw us in a garbage container without major moral ramifications. If there is no God, then the best option is to pack all the guns and bombs and news studios and politicians and planes and tanks that you can to fight your enemy. And because when Goliath flexed his arms, Israel saw how big a guns he had, they were scared. Listen, I'm not judging nobody here. Israel's scared, and it is clear to see why. CNN, cable TV, movies, your friends, everyone is trying to convince you that you cannot win. There is a giant in the valley, and he's calling you out. Now, you have probably never carried a sword with the intention of going into mortal combat, but I can imagine how easy it would have been to have your eyes so focused on that giant that you forgot about the God who created that giant. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Fix your eyes Upon Jesus. Now, don't forget, when CNN puts their glasses on in the morning, when Goliath put his glasses on in the morning, the worldview that he had made him believe that he was all that in a bag of chips. He compared himself to others around him, and he came out smelling like roses. Well, Goliath probably didn't smell like roses, but you get the metaphor. This should never be the fault of Bible-believing, Christ-honoring Christians. We know that we are sinners. And we know that we are weak. In fact, some of you who follow me on Facebook probably saw that a week and a half ago I lost my patience a little bit in talking about this exact topic to somebody. I am a sinner. But we cannot fall to the sin that Jesus condemns in Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that ye not be judged. 
Jesus here in Matthew 7 wants to guard you and me against the sin of condemning someone. Of believing that we are better than they because we are wiser, smarter, whatever it is we think we are. Jesus wants us to guard against the sin that the abortion supporters have and that is we're better than you. We're smarter than you. We are more compassionate than you. All of which is a lie from the pit of hell. But it is not our job to condemn. It is our job to discern. It is our job to love. Because our enemies are not flesh and blood. But David's were. David said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now David in this story is called a youth. Someone, a young man that we would term be somewhere between 13 and 18 years old. Whatever his age, doesn't really matter. He clearly does not stack up even to Saul but certainly not to a fully armed warrior in his prime. He doesn't stack up when looking through merely materialistic glasses. But David knows who he is fighting. Goliath is the religious and political enemy of Israel. This giant has taken up arms, not against him personally, although that is also true in the story, but against the armies of Israel and the armies of heaven. Now let me repeat, you and I are not in the same position as David. We do not take up arms to fight religious wars because we do not live in a theocracy. We do not live in a government under Yahweh and we have no land to defend. Instead, Paul clarifies what it is that we do. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So how do we wage war on the Goliath of abortion? One idea is to open the minds of those around you to the bondage the absolute slavery that abortion is and open it to the freedom and the glory of being a woman created in God's image demonstrate the goodness of a life lived in light of pursuing righteousness demonstrate the truth of a life lived in light of the innocent human person that is developing inside her Demonstrate the beauty of a life lived in light of pursuing womanhood as no man could ever dream of living. Now what I just said is absolute folly. Can't even believe some preacher would say something like that. Armed with these arguments against the media around us is like, it's like, going against a fully armed giant with a slingshot. 3,000 years later, the battle belongs to the Lord.
the battle belongs to the Lord, whether you win or not. You don't need to worry about swords and javelins and M16s or even arguments that can't be gainsaid. We already have those arguments and our opponents are unmoved. Instead, we look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. That's my advice. Do you find yourself struggling in the whiplash culture of who said, she said? The helter-skelter of which absurdity is going to be the flavor of the month? The planting our feet in mid-air in terms of angry denunciations of everything on the other side and the, the end of the world as we know it predictions on both sides of the aisles? Look at Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus because the battle belongs to the Lord. Jesus is the answer because as you go to the Gospel and you see His compassion, you see His strength, you see His authority, you will see how trusting in the promises of God for you in Christ will enable you Equip you, empower you to see the world through the eyes of the one to whom Goliath is a Barbie doll. And David knew this in his bones. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Dude, you are not able to go fight against this Philistine and fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war since his youth. Remember King Saul's worldview, his glasses that he puts on in the morning? He looks at himself and he sees, I don't have it. I got no resources. I can't do this. Well, actually, he's right about that, isn't he? They can't. And neither can you convince your neighbors. The good news is the battle is not me. The battle is not mine. I don't have to win because the battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to to the Lord. God can win. God will win by using your witness, you as a tool because you have been fixing your eyes on Jesus and you see the truth. You see who's going to win the world. You see the reality of the depravity and the, the wretchedness of believing the lie of abortion. And you see there's something so much better. And so you're not preaching hatred against anybody. You're not preaching animosity against anybody. Instead, you're reaching out to the woman in a crisis pregnancy and you're saying, how can I help you? And meaning it. And you're doing something about it because you see that your life isn't dependent upon your resources. So you're not trying to hold on to everything you got. 
And you're living free and open and people can't help but see that. Look to Jesus. My friends, I, I, I freely admit, in terms of the issue on abortion, you and I are all in King Saul's sandals. But David, on the other hand, is eminently grounded in reality. King Saul, don't fret. King Saul, I know I'm your subject. I know I belong to you. But guess what? I am even more subject to the King of Kings and the President of Presidents. And so he was able to say, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Be warm and well fed. Good luck with that, kid. To whom did David give credit for defeating the lion and the bear? The Lord. To whom did David give credit for defeating Goliath when he hadn't even gone out there to battle yet? The Lord. Is David arrogant like Tom Brady, whom all good Christians are praying that God humbles? No, no, David looks to the Lord both before and after the battle, just like you and I must look to Jesus. You and I need to ask ourselves an important question. Who is really fighting here in 1 Samuel 17? Well, Clearly, David is. He's the dude that's got the slingshot and the pebbles. But just as clearly, and more importantly, it is the Lord who is fighting the battles. And it is the Lord who owns the victory. Let's bring this back to the 21st century. Jesus says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious to how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that very hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who is speaking through you. Now I hope, I pray that you are already sharpening your trusting skills. You know people in your neighborhood who believe in the right side of history and are supporting abortion and any other number of God-image-bearing, destroying policies. They too see Goliath, but they see him on their side, and their glasses won't let them see the truth. Your job is to look to Jesus, to show them the truth incarnate and the truth as reality is. So we speak the truth in love and we show them grace even if we don't quote-unquote win. That is how you know that the battle belongs to the Lord and not you. And how freeing it is to know that I'm just a little Dave. I'm just a little guy and the battle does not belong to me. 
David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. So you and I don't fight with physical weapons. We don't assassinate. We don't belittle those opposed to us. So how does, I mean, this is the coolest verse in this chapter, right? I mean, you got, this is awesome, Dave. I wish I were half the man you were. How then do we take this verse and bring it to our century and apply it to us? Well, at a minimum, it means that you don't live, or you do, you live and die as he would want you to. If you are to enter into the battle today in the name of the Lord, you will certainly not go and defend politicians and policies, however good intentioned they may be. And said, you will know and live with and breathe and speak the grace of the one who is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, and the President of Presidents. You will instead look to Jesus. If there was a lion in the room, you would do anything and everything you needed to do to make sure you were in a right relationship to that lion. You would make sure that something was between you and that lion. That's what it means to fear the Lord. To fear the world, on the other hand, is to bow the knee to the bluster. You can't win! You're on the wrong side of history. You don't understand because you're a male. This cultural giant is shouting the praises of unfettered murder on the most empirically innocent human persons on the planet. Are you going to march down into the valley with a slingshot and pebbles? Changing the metaphor a little bit. If the lion in the room is the lion of Judah and he asks you to look at something, you will see whatever it is he asks you to look at in relationship to him. You won't see abortion as a tool to free oppressed women. You will see it as a weapon to spit in the eye of the God of gods, the personal creator God of the universe. And you will defend the rights of the unborn and help the women who are involved in crisis pregnancy. You will take care of the orphans at the personal cost of time and talent and treasure because that is what it means today to fight in the name of the Lord with regards to this particular issue. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and He will give you into our hand. This, this is the heart of our passage. This is the the verse that we must understand if we are to understand the story as a whole. The point of 1 Samuel 17 is not that the little guy wins. We know that isn't true. The point of 1 Samuel 17 is not that you and I can face giants in our lives and overcome them because we grit our teeth or fight tooth and nail. 
That isn't true either. And every single one of us knows that. The point of 1 Samuel 17 is that God will be glorified because He will win His battles and you, little Dave, will get to play a part in that winning. So keep your eyes on Jesus. Look at Jesus. Trust Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus because the battle belongs to the Lord. Do you want to know what reality looks like? Do you want to know who's really bigger and badder than Goliath? The truth is, God wins. Now until then, we are warned. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Those who are pro-choice are blinded by the enemy of their souls, the so-called God of this world. God of this world indeed. C.S. Lewis reminds us, though, that all names will soon be restored to their proper owner. In other words, the veil won't hang over the world forever, and one day all of us will wear the same glasses. The story of David versus Saul versus Goliath is one reminder that this is true. It is one example where the curtain is pulled back and the audience and actors alike know the truth. The battle belongs to the Lord. But this is a hard truth for us to see in the world in which we live. Amen? Amen? So we are given one more bit of hope in this story. Verse 50. David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. There was no sword in the hand of David. This victory was so improbable. This victory was absolutely impossible by every human measurement. And all Israel knew it. I say, even David knew it. And Saul, sitting on his throne, looking at his own resources, allowed David to go into battle of desperation. Well, somebody has to die. Indeed, between now and then, there will be those who die. Jesus says, you will be delivered up by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now while I'm still convinced that hair is overrated, I firmly believe that Jesus' point here is not that our hair won't be cut and fall to the ground, but that we are absolutely secure. We are absolutely and firmly in the hand of the God who loves us and who will never leave us nor forsake us, even if we are hung by our necks. My friends, not every story has the little guy slay the giant. 
Not every story has three men thrown into a fire and emerge with one like the Son of Man. But these stories are included in the Bible so that we would know that we know that we know in the depths of our bones that God is sovereign over all and the battle belongs to the Lord even if I don't win. Even if weak, small, little David gets beat and bloodied, we are told we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. CNN is transient. MSNBC is transient. All of the movies that Hollywood and Bollywood can make are transient. The good news is that the battle belongs to the Lord. And the one who is the King of Kings and the President of Presidents is on the throne. And the battle belongs to Him. So look at Jesus. Lord, fix our eyes upon Jesus. Cause us to find You sufficient, strong, powerful, mighty, so that we will not lose heart in the face of all that the world wants to throw in our faces. God, give us the grace that we need to be the men and women of God who seek You above all earthly treasures. Let us know that we know that You are the God who wins. And give us the courage, give us the heart of a lion like David to trust in You and to move forward in the battles before us. For our joy, for Your glory, and for the growth of Your kingdom. In Jesus' name, Amen.